Good afternoon. Let me welcome all of you to this last in the series of six lectures, Frontiers of Knowledge, which has been part of the celebration of the Graduate School Centennial Year. Uh, in this series, which is co-sponsored with the Public Lectures Committee of the University, we brought back six of the many, many distinguished alumni of the Graduate School in a variety of fields. Uh, and had, I think, a splendid series uh, of lectures, which uh, has been very well received. There is a brochure at the front of the room that uh, lists the lectures. They are accessible on the web. Uh, the address is given in the brochure if you would like to see them. And I'm told that uh, in the months ahead, uh, the lectures will also be broadcast locally uh, on television. Uh, today is our last lecture, and I'm going to invite Professor Theodore Rabb of the History Department to introduce our speaker. Professor Rabb. It's a very special pleasure for me to be able to introduce the last speaker in this series. Uh, since he was a classmate of mine in graduate school uh, well over 40 years ago. Uh, we both arrived in Princeton in 1958. Uh, Lester Little as a recent graduate of Dartmouth College intent on studying medieval history. We took many classes together uh, and in fact we both sat at the feet of Joseph Strayer, who uh, eventually was uh, Professor Little's mentor as he wrote his dissertation. And indeed, we both have many happy memories of sitting in Professor Strayer's office uh, under the tutelage of the great man uh, on the second floor of Dickinson Hall uh, who would punctuate uh, his more devastating comments, especially about our work, uh, by tossing the butt of his cigarette through the open window, impervious to who might be walking by below. Uh, the seminars we shared uh, had a longer-term consequence. Indeed, Professor Little's very first uh, publication, Calvin's Appreciation of Gregory the Great, which appeared in the Harvard Theological Review in 1963. I remember very well as a seminar paper that was prepared while we were together in graduate school. Uh, the continuities, uh, the uh, sense that medieval history has continued here, and I'm sure those of you who saw the banner outside will know that it's still flourishing at Princeton where the undergraduates are about to put on a production billed as Beowulf the Musical. Uh, the uh, academic uh, proliferation of medieval studies at Princeton ha has continued apace uh, and it is uh, wonderful to bring back one of the most distinguished products uh, of medieval studies at Princeton to give this lecture. Uh, since those early days, uh, Professor Little has taught at Chicago, at Berkeley, at the University of Venice, at Yale, 
and since 1982 he has been the Dwight Morrow Professor of History at Smith College. Uh, among his many publications have been a series of books about medieval life, Nature, Man, and Society in the 12th Century, Religious Poverty and the Profit Economy in Medieval Europe, Charity, Fraternity, uh, Lay Religion, Confraternities, uh, which he published originally uh, in Italian, and Benedictine Maledictions, uh, Liturgical Cursing in Romanesque Europe. Uh, since 1998, he has been the director of the American Academy in Rome, and today he is going to speak to us on monasticism in Western society, from marginality to the establishment and back. Less the little. Thank you, dear friend for your characteristically gracious introduction. And thank you for this kind welcome to all of you. To the Dean, John Wilson, I want to say congratulations uh, as well to your faculty committee and the public lecture committee on your organization of this important moment in the graduate school. You're obviously not using this for nostalgia, but for constructive thinking about the future. I've read with considerable interest your initiative to get institutional recognition of a fact that we've all known for a very long time, namely that graduate study is a 12-month-a-year occupation. And let me assure you that the staff of the Centennial Program has been exquisite. So thank you for the honor of being asked to participate in this celebration. The American Academy in Rome uh, that Ted mentioned just now is an independent institution that was founded in 1894. No matter how independent, it's always needed help from friends. About 100 American colleges and universities make a modest annual contribution to the Academy. It's a very distinguished honor roll of institutions. Within it, uh, there's an elite of uh, 15 colleges or universities that are singled out as charter sustainers of the academy, and among these it is no surprise to find the name of Princeton. Thus the ties of Princeton to the American Academy go right back to the latter's foundation, and they are very numerous. I would like to take just a moment of my time to mention two of them. First, the academy itself is an amalgam of a school of classical studies and a school of architecture. Both of these have changed extensively over the years so that today we have fellows in all Western humanistic fields and artists in musical composition, literature, the visual arts, design, landscape, as well as in architecture. Well, the chairman of the committee governing the scholarly side of the academy for many years at the start of the 20th century was none other than your predecessor, Andrew Fleming West. The second tie I have in mind concerns another centenary. In October, we plan to hold a conference in Rome marking the 100 years since the birth of Oliver Strunk, Princeton's first professor of musicology. A man with academic pedigree but no degree, Strunk began his career in the late 20s 
in the music division of the Library of Congress. At that time, music at Princeton meant little more than the choir. In 1935, President Dodds hired Roy Dickinson Welch from Smith College to found a program in music. It was first lodged in the Department of Art and Archaeology. And his first appointments were of Roger Sessions, a fellow of the American Academy, and Oliver Strunk. What came out of this was a phenomenon rarely achieved in modern academic history. The students of Strunk, all Princeton PhDs obviously, came to fill practically every important professorship in music history in the United States. Lewis Lockwood at Harvard, Kenneth Levy here, Don Randall at Cornell, Leo Treitler at the City University, Philip Gossett at Chicago. Joseph Kerman at Berkeley, uh, Pierluigi Petrobelli at Rome, and my own late colleague at Smith, Paul Evans. So by now, their students uh, are or are becoming the professors. But Strunk's influence reached far uh, more directly, practically, to every undergraduate who ever took a history course in music during the last half century. And this was by means of his source readings in music history, published in 1950 and which he referred to mockingly as his opus unicum. It was definitely uh, not enough to merit tenure, but uh, in fact, 48 years later, that is in 98, uh, a seven-volume edition of it appeared under the general editorship of Leo Treitler. It's still the Bible, in other words. Well, I just want to conclude that by saying the foreword to that 1950 edition is signed at the American Academy in Rome. And when Strunk retired in 1966, he moved to Rome and eventually left his books to our library. So the ties, uh, as I said, are numerous. But now to avoid charges of uh, false advertising, we need to say something about monasticism in Western society. Flight from the world is a standard theme in medieval monastic rhetoric. But the realization of this theme in specific situations took many different forms, ranging from a literal withdrawal into remote places to a more figurative disengagement that in truth allowed monks to remain right in centers of population and social interaction. The very derivation of monk and its cognates from a Greek root meaning alone indicates a social as against a spiritual meaning. To be sure, hermit, derived from the Greek for wilderness or desert, became the preferred designation for solitary ascetic, while monk came to denote, paradoxically, that type of religious ascetic who lived with other such ascetics in communities. The brotherhood inherent in the word friar gives assurance that the friars also lived in communities, even if significantly different from those of the monks. All of these religious communities themselves spanned a range from central locations and involvements to remote peripheries and isolation. This kind of range is, of course, not peculiar to Western Christianity. If we try for just a moment to take in the worldwide context of monastic experience, which thus transcends any particular religious tradition, we'll see that it offers a still broader spectrum of possible ties between monks and society. At one extreme are those who chose to inhabit caves or tombs, those who went deep into deserts or forests, 
or those who isolated themselves on mountaintops or islands, effectively severing all social ties. They include followers of ISIS and adherents to Jainism and Hindu sages. We have to surmise that some of these were so successful in fleeing the world that they managed to leave no trace recoverable by either history or archaeology. At the other extreme, however, are monasticisms integral to their respective establishments, and of these unsurpassed are the Buddhist monks of Tibet, who after all were entrusted with the governance of their state. Returning though within the narrow, narrower confines I've set for this lecture, the physical and psychological distances between Christian monasticism and Western Latin society fluctuated over time. The great age of Western monasticism, fixed in our minds by the sound of chant and by images of lofty churches, rows of black cowled figures and serene cloisters, lasted from about the 8th century to the 12th. An erudite but above all liturgical monasticism, it was an integral part of the social, economic and political, as well to be sure as religious and intellectual fabric of the time. Yet Christian monasticism began in the eastern part of the Roman Empire as a distinctly and consciously marginal phenomenon, and so it still was when it arrived in the West. Here then I'll review those origins and then explore how the movement, once transferred, entered the mainstream of Western society. Then I'll turn to the main components of monasticism at its zenith, witness its transformation by the friars, and conclude with its decline and vestiges. And with luck, I think we should be out of here by about 7.30. <laughs> Christian monasticism originated in Egypt in the late third and early fourth centuries. Its first celebrated protagonist was Anthony, who fled from his native city to the desert to begin a life of rigorous asceticism in isolation. His life became a model through the biography written about him by Athanasius, the patriarch of Alexandria. He soon had many Egyptian imitators, while his experience had parallels in Syria and Palestine as well. This spiritual quest in the desert calls for explanation. The first generations of Christians shared in the fervor of belonging to a revolutionary elite. It sustained them in the face of official persecution and martyrdom. But the very success of the religious movement whose growth they fostered became an agent both of compromise and of loss of fervor from the early heroic period. The expansion of the Christian community led to the branching out of a clergy, which itself assumed a complex hierarchical structure, and to the concentration of authority on doctrinal and disciplinary matters in the hands of bishops. All these developments were well underway by the time of the Emperor Constantine's momentous conversion to Christianity, this is in about 312, and his subsequent extension of official toleration to include it. As Christianity then became the majority religion in many areas of the East, and as the state intervened in its affairs, including even doctrine, voices of protest denouncing the politicization of the church and the compromises that, that this entailed began to be heard. The response of some of the most fervent and most deeply committed of the faithful was to drop out. To them, the Constantinian settlement, while making the world safe for Christianity, had so tamed Christianity as to make it safe for the world to embrace. 
the problem became one of recapturing and maintaining the kind of commitment that once fired up the first generations of Christians. Certain themes of the spiritual writings of this rebellious movement made the connection with the heroic past. Let me give you three examples. First is that of monks as the remnant of Israel. Sectarian disputes among the ancient Israelites had led to competing claims among groups to constitute the genuine core or remnant of Israel. It was a natural claim for that minority group of Jews to make who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. This will bring some of you back to recall the lecture of Paula Fredrickson at the start of this series. Yet some of their heirs, that is the Christians, the heirs of the Jesus movement, three centuries later, no longer felt that the Christian community could make such a claim. That role, they felt, ought once again pass to an elite, untainted by compromise. Christian monks, therefore, now constituted the true remnant of Israel. The second theme is that of the monk as martyr. Anthony himself once came back from the desert to Alexandria during a wave of persecution to try ostentatiously to get martyred. He failed and had to return to the harsh routine of daily martyrdom in the desert. With Constantine's legitimizing of Christianity and the sudden abolition of martyrdom as a viable way to give testimony to one's faith, monastic writers developed a theme proclaiming monks to be the true heirs of the martyrs, even contrasting the instant glory of the arena with the more worthy because more difficult martyrdom of endless suffering day after day, year after year in the desert. And still another theme was that of the monastery as city in the desert. This was, of course, an anti-city, founded in opposition to most all that the polis or kivitas, that quintessential social unit of antiquity, had stood for. Thus, after the triumph of Christianity and of all the comp compromises that that had entailed, the monastery in the desert gathered in a protest movement of willful dropouts who claimed to constitute the true remnant of Israel, the true heirs of the martyrs, and citizens of the true city. The spiritual council gathered by a Western observer, John Cassian, during a tour of ascetic watering places in the desert, this would have been in the 390s, includes advice, for men only apparently, to flee women and bishops. Women here implied the sinful corruption found in contemporary society. More startling is the notion of holy people giving advice to flee bishops. Yet Gregory of Nazianus resigns the bishopric of Constantinople in 381, claiming that he had not understood that, quote, we bishops ought to rival consuls, governors, and generals, with everyone cheering and making way for us as though we were wild beasts, end quote. And many individuals saw bishops as little different from Roman magistrates and as the chief agents of the church's many compromises with the leading social and political structures of the time. Seen in this light, early monasticism can be understood both as a lay movement and as a protest against the comfortable integration of the church into the mainstream of late Roman society. John Cashin was uh, just one of several visitors to the East responsible for bringing word of monastic ideals, and practices, and experiences to the West. Jerome and Hilary of Poitiers were among those who had gone before. 
Visitors came from the East as well, notably Athanasius himself, who visited Rome, Milan, and Trier in the 340s. Spiritual writings from the East began to appear in Latin translations. And so in a variety of ways, the monastic life was transplanted into the Western provinces, that is, into North Africa, into Italy, Gaul, and Spain. The organization of the church in the West, meanwhile, faithfully reproduced the essentials of the imperial political structure that preceded it. Continuity in personnel as well as institutions was guaranteed by the ease with which members of the senatorial aristocracy glided into the episcopacy and by the apparent lack of inconvenience their religion caused them in living and governing about as their ancestors had done. To such people, the ascetic impulses represented by hermits and monks, especially the more charismatic ones among them, needed to be kept under control. The church in the West was a church run by bishops who had spiritual and administrative authority over all Christians living within their well-defined areas of jurisdiction. And when occasionally they failed to contain monasticism, as in the famous case of St. Martin, a charismatic monk who became bishop of Tours in 370, they made an open display of their disapproval and disgust. A revealing exception to this pattern is the case of Ireland, the first country outside the Roman world whose people embraced Christianity. St. Patrick and his companions who joined him in a mission to Ireland in about 430 were familiar with the ascetic ideals and organizing principles of the monastic life that had been brought to Gaul from Egypt and other Eastern Mediterranean countries, as well as with the Episcopal administrative structure of the Gallic Church. And all of these things together constituted the church that they brought with them in their minds. While little is known of the course of the mission, when the Irish church did at last come into view in the late 500s, it was a decidedly monastic church. As the country was devoid of the standard Roman infrastructure of cities, ports, roads, bridges, geopolitical units of administration and jurisdiction, the Episcopal organization of the continental church just did not take. The leading unit of social organization was the clan, and every large clan had a monastery, a monastery for men, and most had also a monastery for women. Meanwhile, on the continent in the sixth century, there were monastic communities for women and men both in all the Western Roman provinces then experiencing the Germanic migrations. These communities were governed by a variety of monastic rules, some imported and translated, others indigenous. Among the latter was a lengthy and harsh rule current in south-central Italy called the Rule of the Master. This rule then Benedict of Nursia revised in about the 540s. The resulting rule for monks by Benedict is a model of succinct, reasonable, and adaptable legislation, which differs from its various eastern sources, especially in its moderation in matters of ascetic practice. But still in his lifetime and through the next two and a half centuries, that continued to coexist many kinds of monastic community and many different rules. Meanwhile, Benedict's fame was established and his memory kept vivid because Pope Gregory I, who reigned from 590 to 604, gathered the oral tradition about his life into a biography. It's basically a collection of miracle stories and this work gained broad circulation. 
Monasticism was thus a widespread movement in the West, but one that was diverse in its manifestations, dispersed in its placement, and still in social terms, with the exception of Ireland, distinctly peripheral. The reversal of these trends began with Pope Gregory, a Roman magistrate in papal garb who preferred to be remembered, indeed, as a consul of God. He identified as a major policy issue of his time the presence in Roman territory of the Germanic peoples, who were either only very superficially converted to Christianity and who had weak ties, if any, with the Church of Rome, or else, as in the case of the Anglo-Saxons, who were still pagans. He organized a mission to England for the purpose of converting these heathens to Christianity and entrusted it to a group of monks from the Roman monastery in which he had previously lived. These monks, who had left the world and had vowed to remain in their monastery, were sent on a lengthy and dangerous mission far from home. Contrary as this task may seem to their monastic vocation, it was precisely such features of their monastic life as discipline, obedience, religious learning, and humble bearing that qualified them so well for the task. The English mission was successful. In less than a century, all the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms came over to the Roman Christian camp. The missionaries remained in close touch with their base in Rome. They sent inquiries to the Pope seeking instruction on matters ranging from doctrine and liturgy to morality and church organization. They and some of their successors traveled to Rome to secure relics and sacred books for the new church. The English monasteries at first served as command posts for the Christianization process and subsequently took conspicuous places in the landscape, most notably at the country's cathedrals. The English bishops, far from being opponents of monasticism, came out of a monastic tradition and presided over monastic churches. In the late seventh century, when the initial process of Christianization in England was about complete, some Anglo-Saxon monks brought their evangelizing skills to the people their ancestors had left behind in Germany. A new frontier opened for these monk missionaries who moved into Frisia, Saxony, Thuringia, Hesse, Franconia, and so on. They went from England to convert the Germans, but they sought advice, relics, books, and permission from Rome. So important to them was the Roman connection that they shed what they regarded as their awkward-sounding Anglo-Saxon names to adopt mellifluous Roman names. Americans can see the irony here, knowing as we do the experience so often repeated at Ellis Island of individuals having their difficult to pronounce Italian or other foreign names anglicized um, in the 7th and 8th centuries. It was just the other way around. The most famous of these uh, English missionaries to Germany, Winfried, who preferred to be known as Boniface, had a crucial role in reforming the Frankish church towards the middle of the 8th century in particular by having its bishops assemble in synods and establish for the first time close ties with Rome. In the meantime, the Frankish church had been undergoing a radical transformation from an entirely different quarter, namely Ireland. And this transformation, together with the new impulses arriving from England, brought about the recovery of Western monasticism from its inherited marginality and projected it via Frankish hegemony into the mainstream of Western society. In the 590s, the same decade during which Pope Gregory launched a group of Roman monks on a mission to convert the Anglo-Saxons, the Irish monk Columban arrived in the land of the Franks, where the Gallo-Roman aristocracy still dominated 
both the Episcopal hierarchy and the monastic elite. With neither a sponsor at home directing his moves, nor an itinerary planned out in advance, and hence without a precise mission, Columban and his companions transformed the religious life by encouraging leading Frankish families to set up monasteries on their own lands. The founder in each instance usually became the first abbot, or the founders the first abbots. And this person usually gained sainthood, while the monastic church became the family mausoleum. Founding a monastery in this way did not involve the, a, the sacrifice of a, facult, of a faculty member, think of it, of a family member to the religious life, or the alienation of family property to an external institution, but rather the absorption of a religious community, the power of liturgy and prayer, plus the power and prestige of sanctity into the family. The adaptation of the clan-based monasticism of Ireland to the structure of Frankish aristocratic society produced a unique and original mix. This new Iro-Frankish monasticism, for the most part located outside the old Gallo-Roman towns, which in turn had become the centers of Episcopal authority, played a major role in evangelizing the countryside. Moreover, it transformed the nature of the episcopacy itself. In the course of the seventh century alone, 11 monks from just one of the leading Celtic monasteries were named to Frankish Episcopal sees. Besides founding monasteries such as Jumiège, uh, Jouar, and Nivelle, and in other ways fostering the new monastic spirituality, the new breed of bishop brought up to date such older foundations as St. Martin of Tours and St. Denis outside of Paris. The consolidation of the major social role of monasticism in Europe is linked directly to the consolidation of the Carolingian dynasty. Anglo-Saxon as well as Frankish monks were essential from the start in establishing a new source of legitimacy for Pepin's takeover of the monarchy in 751. Charlemagne enlisted monks to advise him and to pray on behalf of his armies. Monks were henceforth standard appurtenances of Christian Germanic kingship. Louis the Pious included in royal policy his effort to establish uniform norms for the monastic life, including adoption of Benedict's rule as the lone standard rule for all monasteries. This was in 817. Even under this program of standardization, each individual monastery re remained a separate corporation. Monks and nuns belonged to the abstract social category of the monastic order, but each of them joined and vowed to remain in just one particular monastery. This monastic model, which took shape in early Carolingian times, flourished for about four centuries and was unchallenged for half that time. And even when challenged, it remained impressively vigorous. Its, its defining characteristic was liturgical. Its prime reason for being was to maintain a regular and continuous round of liturgical performance. The essential meaning given religion was ritual, and where ritual was carried out correctly and with great regularity, there religion was believed to flourish. More was also better to judge from the escalation in the number of psalms recited. In the rule for monks composed by Benedict, as we saw in the mid-6th century and rendered universal, as we've just said, in the year 817, Benedict left some discretion on the matter of which psalms were recited at which times, so long as all 150 of them were recited each week. 
and the customs compiled by the monk Ulrich in about 1080, however, the daily number exceeded 150. The biographer of Abbot Odilo of Cluny noted how Odilo always sang the Psalms correctly and that the importance of doing so was a major theme of his preaching to the monks. There may just be an echo of this in the remark of John Adams following a visit to Princeton in 1774. The scholars, he said, sing as badly as the Presbyterians at New York. Similarly revealing, though, if we can go back to the monastery, is the organization of life outside the uh, sanctuary seen in the complex rituals that govern such daily activities as dressing, washing, and taking meals. In inspiration, thought patterns, and rhetoric, this liturgical monasticism shared in a culture that was deeply indebted to the Old Testament. Models for the duties and prerogatives of the religious were found in the instructions given the Levites in the Book of Numbers. The very basis for political legitimacy devised for the Carolingian dynasty came from Old Testament models, namely the anointings of Saul and David by Samuel. In analogous fashion, the Carolingians and their successors found immediate stylistic models for the church buildings they sponsored in buildings at Ravenna and Rome, whereas they turned to the Old Testament for justification, which they found in the description of the building of the Temple of Solomon. This classic model of establishment monasticism drew its recruits from the highest rungs in the social ladder. Having only high-born members was a point of pride for the nuns of Remiremont and for the monks of Reichenau. Abbots and abbesses came from royal, comital, ducal, or other prominent families. They used their ready access to the powerful to pursue their own monastery's interests, but they also to bring their influence to bear upon the ways the powerful conducted their lives. Einhard's life of Charlemagne mutes the Germanic warlord in his hero in favor of a more pious, more cultivated, and nonviolent leader. Perhaps he intended it more as a guide for future rulers than a historical record. The influence of the monks could go only so far, yet they continually set the standards for royal and aristocratic behavior through the biographies, admonitions, and tracts on political theology they composed. The monastic spirituality of such princes as King Robert the Pious, Count Gerald of Aurillac, or King Edward the Confessor was no accident. In the same vein, when the King of France went on a crusade in 1147, it was no aberration that the abbot of Saint-Denis stood in as regent. Monks and nuns were in indispensable because of their virtual monopoly on prayer. Their religious function was central to a widely shared vision of social organization. Beginning with the monk missionary Boniface, a few Anglo-Saxon and Frankish writers gave expression to their views of how society is composed, what functions are served by each of its parts, and how these parts are related. Their ideas fit the Indo-European pattern elucidated by Dumézil, in which the basic functions were those of praying, fighting, and working. In a sermon in 995, Aelfric, an Anglo-Saxon monk, gave definitions of the three main orders in terms of social function. The laboratories, the workers, are those who by their labor provide our means of substance. The oratories, that is those who pray, are those who intercede for us with God. And the bellatories, the warriors, are those who protect our cities and defend our soil against invading armies. 
Despite differences on particular points, all authors on the subject shared the premise that the functions defining each order were exclusive. I mean by that, that warriors alone were the ones who conducted war. Only workers worked, and only those who prayed, that is by profession, prayed. That parasitic behavior of clerics and warriors demonstrates that neither of those groups wish to share in the exertions of the laborers. So by that same logic, praying was the exclusive preserve of the oratories and not the business of either knights or peasants. If religion was an activity engaged in by monks and only by them, then religion for everybody else in society was vicarious. The monks said prayers not just for themselves, but for everyone, and not just for the living, but also for the dying and the dead. They had the names of the deceased for whom they undertook an obligation to pray, inscribed in registers called books of life, after those lists of the elect mentioned in the book of Revelation, or they were called memorial books. The necrology of the nuns of Marcigny-sur-Loire lists 10,000 names, and that of Reichenau four times as many. The persons named were to be remembered during the Mass, but as there was no way that all the names could be read out each time, the book was placed upon the altar. That is, it was plugged into the altar, as if the charismatic juice would then flow through it. In this complex ancestor cult, the principal intermediaries, who had the task of trying to save the deceased, were the saints. And the saints were present in the form of relics, whereas the intermediaries between the living and the saints were the monks and nuns. Any contact with the holy had to be made through them. For these indispensable services rendered, monks were the beneficiaries of lay generosity. Great quantities of land were handed over to monastic communities by lay people anxious to secure their own access to salvation. The accumulation of huge monastic patrimonies is attested to by the large cartularies that document them, by the wealth, prestige, and political power that went with an abbot's role as landlord, and by the size and splendor of abbey churches. Back in the phase when monk missionaries evangelized the Germanic peoples, these religious specialists campaigned persistently among their listeners to get them to abandon their pagan habits. One in particular was the practice of showering gold, silver, precious gems, tools, and weapons upon the dead in their graves to assist them in their other world journey. But this practice which the monk missionaries so tried to discourage, was not so much halted as redirected into monastic churches, which thereby became storehouses of precious objects transformed into liturgical paraphernalia. That is, conspicuous consumption shifted from grave to sanctuary. In the cause of liturgy, nothing was too sumptuous, too precious, or too refined. Whereas individual monks were not to have any possessions, there were no restrictions upon corporate wealth. On the contrary, wealth, along with the consistency of ritual, served as an index of the strength and validity of religious devotion. In the 10th century, John of Salerno called St. Martin of Tours, quote, a place full of virtue, remarkable for miracles, overflowing with riches, excelling all in the practice of religion. From the plan of St. Gall, that is a drawing made uh, on parchment in the 8th century of what would be or should be an ideal monastic 
uh, architectural layout from the time of that plan until the construction of such stupendous monuments in the 11th and 12th centuries as Tewkesbury, Fleury, Silos, Pomposa, the list is very long. The basic elements of monastic architecture assumed their mature, integrated form. The central element was, of course, the church, the setting for the liturgical splendors that monastic theology saw as prefiguring heavenly banquets. Every abbey had, in addition, a cloister, a chapter house, a dormitory, a kitchen, a refectory, an infirmary, visitors' quarters, and so on. The monks were repeatedly in the forefront, not just of design, but of technological development, for their commitment to the worthiness of manual labor made of them significantly the first social elite in Western history to show interest in labor-saving techniques. The grandiose scale and complexity of monastic estate management and especially architecture is a clear indication of social power. For architecture as an art form is dependent as no other art form is upon the patronage of the establishment. Marginal groups can foster and produce artistic expressions in many media, but they cannot muster the resources to produce monumental architecture. No ties with the establishment, no big buildings. A perhaps similar point was being made here in 1928 when one of the locals referred to the new university chapel as a $2 million protest against materialism. <laughs> that standard monastic plan also included, to be sure, a library and a scriptorium. In the earliest monastic centuries, there had been ambivalence about the values of learning and literacy. But starting with the task entrusted to monks by Cassiodorus in the sixth century of preserving the written legacy of antiquity, pagan as well as Christian, Western monasticism was unabashedly erudite. Books were venerated as sacred objects and the work of the copyist regarded as a spiritual act. The monastic monopoly on prayer was maintained by a companion monopoly upon formal schooling, a monopoly shared by women monastic scholars. And so in every major sphere of human activity, religious, political, economic, artistic, and intellectual, European monasticism between the 8th and the 12th centuries held a major role, more dominant in some spheres than in others, but important in all of them. Even before this imposing form of monastic life reached its peak, criticisms, not only of its excesses, but also of its underlying principles were voiced and alternative forms began to be launched. These originated at the start of the 11th century in northern Italy, seen as well of the beginnings of a commercial market economy, which in turn fueled the rise of a distinctly new urban culture. The first critics built an Eremitic movement that is a hermit movement that drew heavily upon the examples of the Egyptian desert fathers. The leaders of this movement had all had personal experience in some of the earliest of the newly activated centers of commerce, as well as in some of the leading abbeys of the established monastic life. In the view of one of these, Peter Damien, who inspired so many to become hermits or to join the greatly simplified monastic life at Fonte Avalana or at Camaldoli, knowledge of the gospel and of the deeds and sayings of the Desert Fathers was sufficient for the religious life. Whereas the prolonged chanting, the sounding of bells, the dazzling garments and ornaments of the monks, he regarded as superfluous. Towards the end of the 11th century, the leader of an analogous movement in France, Stephen of Muret, rejected the monastic rule of Benedict because, as he taught his followers, the gospel is the only appropriate rule for governing the religious life. 
Similar in inspiration to these leaders were others who sought instead to restore the monastic order to an earlier, pristine condition, rid of the accretions of recent times. I refer to the foundations of the Carthusians, the pre monstra tensions, the Cistercians, and so on. These groups created organizations that transcended individual houses with centralized control, a table of organization, and assemblies of abbots. When the most famous Cistercian of all, Bernard of Clairvaux, died in 1153, the Cistercian order consisted of 343 houses, and by the end of the 12th century, that figure had passed 500. The proliferation of new religious movements went further still, extending not least to various initiatives of lay people, usually preachers, who, like the monastic reformers, drew inspiration from an apostolic model, but most of whom found themselves marginalized by the clerical hierarchy. At the start of the 13th century, the orders of mendicant friars not only synthesized the leading developments in the religious life of the preceding two centuries, but also transcended them by far. St. Dominic was a priest whose ministry developed over the course of a prolonged stay among Cathars, the so-called heretics, in Languedoc. From his experience among these critics of the Roman Church, as well as among its adherents, he identified preaching as the most compelling need of his time. Preaching, moreover, that was grounded in theological training, presented in rational discourse, and delivered by religious who were above reproach, especially when it came to the apostolic model of poverty and humility. St. Francis, meanwhile, was a layman whose early followers lived as itinerant hermits, ministering and seeking alms in towns by day, and spending the nights in woods or in caves outside of towns. He carried out to the fullest Stephen of Muray's notion that the gospel is the only rule needed for the religious life. He gave primacy to teaching by the example of his and his followers' apostolic mode of life. The membership of both the Franciscan and Dominican orders came in part from the newly dominant sectors of urban society. And these same sectors became the focus of the friars' dynamic pastoral ministry, based on preaching and penance. Within less than a century, the Dominicans had some 700 convents located in cities all over Latin Christendom, and the Franciscans had twice that number. Other orders of mendicant friars appeared, and indeed there were so many of them eventually that a church council intervened in 1274 to halt their proliferation. The definition of friars can be made sharper in terms of differences between monks and friars. The individual monk or nun, as we observed, joined a particular monastic community, not the monastic order in general, and was bound by the monastic ideal of stability to remain in that community for the rest of his or her life. The monk or nun could have no personal possessions, but the community or monastery did. The community was a private and independent corporation with its own endowments, usually of land. Most monastic activity was directed away from any involvement in worldly affairs, including pastoral care. The main focus of monastic spirituality, one need always recall, was the liturgy. The individual friar, on the other hand, joined an order rather than a particular house or convent. Both the individual and the entire order were to be propertyless. In the early days of the movement started by St. Francis, such an ideal was apparently attainable. But once some of the friars accepted the gift of a house at Bologna in 1219, the ideal was compromised. 
the ideal remained always just that, an ideal for the mendicant orders. Its mainstay was the legal theological fiction that everything given the friars became papal property, which the friars were then free to use. The main characteristic of mendicant spirituality was the active apostolate to the urban laity. Thus, mendicant convents, unlike monasteries, were situated in cities, and individual friars, unlike monks, often moved from one convent of their order to another in keeping with the needs of their ministry. The relative parity that had been available to monastic women up to the 12th century all but evaporated in the many new movements that culminated in the friars. The presence of women in Benedictine cloisters did not threaten any social norms over the long haul from Benedict's time in the 6th century until the 12th. The monastery was a reflection of the aristocratic rural estate, and for many women, life in one of these was not uh, radically different from that in another. Not a few estates, furthermore, were run by women. And monasteries, all of them, those of men as well as of women, needed protection against incursions by unwelcome strangers. So monastic women presented no disturbing problem to society. Meanwhile, though, women were not welcomed by the hermit movements, and after an initial period of discreet tolerance, they were excluded from the reformed monastic movements. The real test came with the establishment of the mendicant orders, the directors of these orders and their papal overseers did not allow women to participate in the distinctive feature of the friar's spirituality, namely the urban apostolate. The sight of women of considerable social standing begging for their bread on street corners, no matter how commendable their idealism, went beyond the limits of what the masculine establishment could imagine and tolerate. And so it restricted these holy women instead to a cloistered life in the old-fashioned monastic style. Intellectual life closely paralleled the spiritual. Whereas cloistered nuns participated fully in monastic learning, which took place, of course, within the safety of the monastic precinct, the locus of intellectual activity for the friars was not within their own orders convents, but in the Episcopal schools and in the universities, exclusively urban institutions and hence turf strictly off limits to women. Given such a combination of developments, it is not really surprising that religious women were henceforth marginalized and that their specific spiritual vocation became in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries mysticism. The friars, and by the middle of the 13th century, their convents as well, became integral parts of the urban landscape. In the market towns of mainly rural areas, in cosmopolitan trading centers, in university cities, indeed in population centers of every sort. This urban settlement did not come about by their merely spreading from one place to another on the map, nor in some other haphazard manner. Instead, the friars showed an astuteness about urban sociology that is apparent in the way they tended to head first for the principal center in a new region and from there to the next largest and most important centers and so on down. The result is that the different orders were not concentrated in particular countries or regions, but were present in major cities everywhere and then in less important urban centers down to the level to which they could reasonably extend themselves. The greatest accomplishment of the friars was not, however, 
their creation of a new form within the confines of the religious life. It was what they accomplished outside the religious life that mattered, namely their fostering of a new lay spirituality. The curious and paradoxical end result, though, was that religion itself ceased to be the exclusive preserve of an elite and an essentially vicarious experience for the rest of society. Lay people, starting in the 13th century, were encouraged to make at least one confession per year and similarly to take communion at least once a year at Easter. They were also encouraged to pray and accordingly they were taught to memorize and then recite the Lord's Prayer. The friars were in the forefront of this program, both in the way they taught and ministered to lay people and in the way they encouraged and assisted the secular clergy to do so. There are numerous handbooks for preachers and for confessors testify to this self-appointed role of training priests. They were also assiduous in organizing lay religious confraternities, which served lay people as mutual aid societies and provided the mechanisms and justifications for organizing charitable relief for the poor. The logical conclusion of the friars' program to bring lay people into the spiritual life, and at the same time one of the more radical religious ideas of this or any age, was that eventually there would be no need for religious orders at all, or indeed for clergy as ordinary lay people could lead religious lives. The early history of the friars sparkled with innovation and excitement. The new orders clearly attracted people of great talent, to mention only the stars of 13th century university life. While it is equally clear that monastic communities were no longer attracting recruits of such distinction. Given their substantial endowments, monasteries continued to function in the 14th and 15th centuries, but as very conservative institutions, generally not on the cutting edge of any area of activity, including spirituality. By the late 15th century, criticisms mounted, but the monks seemed incapable of responding, either by defending their way of life or by transforming it. Erasmus and other Christian humanists heaped scorn and ridicule upon this institution, making it now appear devoid of any socially or spiritually redeeming value. The same themes were shortly again taken up by Protestants, who made the abolition of monasticism one of their top priorities. In Catholic countries after 1540, the Jesuits were introduced as an elite, all-male core of papal agents. And although some of the older orders survived, they did so only with reforms that in some way effectively granted the validity of the criticisms. From the time of its introduction from the East in the fourth century to the Counter-Reformation, the monastic life held a place of prime importance in the medieval West. Indeed, a disproportionately large importance given the small numbers of people involved. Starting in the 17th century, it became the object of intense historical interest and has remained under investigation ever since. Some of, this, some of us in this room are still dying out on it. By a curious paradox, and with this I will conclude, the most significant and lasting vestiges of monasticism occurred either where monasticism was totally wiped out or where it had never before existed. They are found in English and American colleges and in radical Protestant sects. The collegiate debt to monastic culture is most apparent in the architectural layout of colleges and the complex of buildings essential to each one. 
the enclosure with its carefully controlled entry gate as the porter's lodge, the bell tower, the imposing mass and central setting of the chapel, the cloister-like quadrangle, the library, the common room, the refectory, and the sleeping quarters. Less tangible but no less significant are the intricately complex annual calendar, the daily schedule that totally governs the lives of all members of the community, the central role of communal devotion and of study, the meals taken in common, the authority of the master, and so on. At the College of New Jersey, from its foundation in 1746 until 1882, students were required to attend morning prayers, originally held at 5 a.m., and evening prayers daily, plus morning and afternoon services on Sunday. As for radical Protestant sects, in the view of Max Weber, the monastic life did not so much disappear at the time of the Reformation as shift to the sectarian community. He saw the Protestant community composed of men, women, and children of just one sect as an extension of the monastic community, as both remnant of Israel and city in the wilderness. It was one more example of how voluntary marginalization could have a preeminently social purpose. One more example of how a community strongly united in its ideals could separate itself out from others in order to become, as Governor John Winthrop said of Massachusetts Bay, a city upon a hill. Thank you. After that breathtakingly learned talk, um, I hope uh, that there will be a number of people who will want to probe further. Uh, Professor Little has very kindly agreed to answer questions, and I am here to try and marshal those as they come in. Yes, sir. Let me just repeat the question in case it wasn't heard. There is a microphone that goes around which people can certainly use. It's a question about the one communion uh, and one confession per year, how that appeared so late, what was going on in the cathedrals, as I understand the question. One of the major tasks of uh, students of medieval religion over the past, past few decades has been to try to find out how the Christian religion was lived, as what people believed and uh, what they did about it. And um, the answer, if the question had been put, and it wasn't very often put a few decades ago, um, that was the question, um, you know, how can, we, uh, how can we know these things? The answer, the first answer almost always would have been, uh, we can't possibly because we don't have the sources for, for doing it. Um, considerable progress has been made uh, recently. And um, what I'm referring to here, uh, to here however, is uh, a rather simple fact that we have legislation introducing the quite radical notion uh, that um, the individual Christian believer should 
make one confession a year and take uh, communion once a year. And uh, we know from the insistence with which it was repeated that that wasn't being done. <laughs> that is to say, it doesn't at all mean that uh, everyone was doing that. But it was a beginning. And uh, the Dominicans uh, I referred to teaching people to, uh, to learn the Lord's Prayer. Uh, they also introduced the rosary in the 13th century. They um, introduced into Europe the, the Indic notion of repeated prayers and counting prayers, that is, with beads, and um, so encouraged a particular form of lay spiritual exercise. This is all new in the 13th century. It is just remarkable to see lay people beginning to be involved in the religious life. That's the real import of what I was saying about the period before. There were specialists in religion who did religion for all of society. A little tiny, tiny elite of monks and nuns who did the work, who did the praying. Oh, some, of, uh, some people might have been, uh, you know, brought in uh, for festivals to see what was going on. Uh, we have uh, some services, for example, that, um, that is, we have rubrics in uh, liturgical services that refer to the people. Certain things should be done only on feast days uh, when there is the expectation that will be, there will be more of a crowd. For example, it doesn't do very well to have an excommunication on a day when there's not likely to be anyone around. Uh, <laughs> everything there depends on getting word out that somebody uh, has behaved badly and should be shunned. And so there the rubric uh, would certainly say, on a feast day, uh, and then such and such is to take place. So there are people present for things, uh, but uh, very, very little uh, uh, participation in what was going on uh, as, as far as we know. The question has to do with the difference between the English and the Irish monastic movements and if it was indeed the case that the English tended to uh, appeal to aristocratic circles 
whereas the Irish monastic movement went far more broadly into more tribal areas. I certainly did uh, create some uh, confusion there. Um, first of all, there are significant ethnic differences. That is, the, um, the dominant controlling force in, uh, in England at the time uh, is clearly the Anglo-Saxon peoples. That is, a Germanic people who've uh, conquered the Celtic uh, population, the so-called Britons, uh, whereas Ireland remains um, a almost exclusively or entirely uh, Celtic uh, population. That's a first uh, distinction. But uh, I think the real import of what subsequently happens is that the Anglo-Saxons are converted by people coming from Italy. And uh, the missionaries who come from Italy come with all of the paraphernalia of Roman organization. And that means discipline. It means a very orderly process in which at every step of the way, these missionaries get back in touch with the Pope in Rome. They ask for advice when they encounter situations uh, that you know, create some problem or question for them. And so they uh, seek uh, the authoritative answer from Rome. The Irish church has no such notion of authority. And so the Irish missionaries who went to the continent at about the same time those Anglo-Saxons, after having been converted, went to the continent, the Irish who went there just took off. That is, the spiritual ideal of peregrination is of the highest importance for the Irish, just to go, leave the comfort of home. And therefore, it's the exact contrary to the Roman notion of keeping close ties with the home base. They just left. Um, that's the first major distinction. And then the substance of what they actually did uh, was uh, the other point uh, that you raised. It was really the Irish who, are, who have such a clan-based notion of uh, organization and no other real principle of social organization, who went almost exclusively to the aristocracy. That is, they went to the Frankish aristocracy in northern Frankish Gaul uh, and appealed to them, got members of their families to found monasteries, and so on. question about the impact of plagues and epidemics on the organization of the religious houses. Of all the things I talked about uh, that perhaps uh, tie in most immediately here would be the proliferation of religious movements in the 12th and 13th centuries, when all of those uh, new groups are founded from the hermits and then the reformed monastic groups and then eventually lay movements and, and the, uh, the friars. 
there's a huge increase not only of types of institutions individuals can join, but as far as we know, huge increase of numbers of people actually joining the religious life. And this is really contrary of the kind of situation you're asking about. It's a period of uh, great demographic growth. So uh, we can take that period of, of uh, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries as one of, uh, of remarkable expansion. And uh, the setting up of new orders uh, doesn't necessarily at all mean individuals being drained away from, uh, from the others. Now, the Middle Ages was really uh, founded in a period of plague and came to an end in a period of plague. Everybody knows about the second of these, that is at the end of the Middle Ages, the 14th century and 15th century, the time of the Black Death. Though we're a little casual in understanding that uh, bubonic plague, uh, when it struck Europe in 1348, uh, then stayed around for four centuries. That is, there was a pandemic that raged in Europe from uh, the 1340s uh, until the 1770s. That's when it left Europe uh, and quite definitively went away and, and has not ever come back. What, on the other hand, is almost a secret among professional historians, not to mention uh, a wider learned public, is that a very similar pandemic of uh, plague was active in the Mediterranean world in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. It hit in 540 and didn't go away uh, until uh, the uh, 760s. That earlier plague is very little studied. And my strongest temptation in answering your question is to say that Western monasticism was really founded in the conditions of plague. I'm equally tempted to say that Islam had the spectacular success it had in the Mediterranean world because of the plague. I would be accused of being tendentious. In fact, it would be tendentious to say it as such. But as a working hypothesis, it certainly uh, seems to me to be reasonable to say that um, the um, Roman Byzantine armies of the 6th century, which we know were decimated, uh, didn't put up a very strong resistance to uh, the Arabs. So I think, uh, first of all, to answer your question, that uh, it's very likely that more than just the, the disorder in society because of the incursions of Germanic peoples, maybe also plague, had something to do with driving individuals to join closely knit, really well-organized rural communities in order to survive obviously to stay in the remnants of Roman cities in the 6th century was an almost certain invitation to a quick and early and probably violent death. And to be able to move into the countryside and have some guarantee of continuity of various kinds, such as food, uh, but uh, also continuity which, if death came, carried right over into the next world. I think all of that was probably very attractive. Um, and I'm currently doing some work on that early plague uh, after the Strunk Conference at the American Academy in October. The December conference will be on the plague of Justinian on precisely uh, that issue. But um, otherwise, there are occasional um, 
uh, epidemics in, uh, in medieval uh, history, but uh, I don't think that uh, there is anything between the 8th century and the 14th century which is massive and uh, utterly widespread uh, right across uh, the continent. There are other people in this room who may give a different answer to that, and, and I hope they'll come forward. Uh. We have time for one more question. John? I don't need to repeat it, he has a microphone. I would like to ask how you would fit into your uh, beautifully uh, lucid uh -oh. uh, summary of, of Western monastic history. A, a minor but uh, romantic and prominent uh, feature that you didn't mention, by which I mean the, the military orders. Uh, who played a fairly significant role at the time of the Crusades, and then just again, just out of your period, and at the time of uh, Ottoman expansion in the in the 16th century, these seem to be people who would blur the line between oratores and bellatores. Oh, they, they certainly do. <laughs> they, they, they blur it. They, they combine these functions. And uh, those three neat functions, I do think, have pretty much come to an end just around the time that, uh, that the military orders were founded. Uh, so I don't pretend that, uh, that they do fit that. Um, I have uh, perhaps been unfair to them. I've never taken them seriously as a new spiritual phenomenon. That is, uh, they are uh, people who serve a very important function and, uh, and, and gained, I think, a certain uh, credibility about what they were doing by uh, their adoption of parts of uh, the monastic life. Um, but um, military orders have never seemed to me to be uh, a, you know, an important new spiritual movement with some new spiritual message that responds to particular needs at that time. The particular needs they responded to at that time were the needs for protection for pilgrims going um, to the holy places. And uh, so it's the military side of them, that, which is innovative and perhaps interesting, but uh, I think rather not the, the religious. Maybe I'm not being fair to them. You are all invited to Adjourn to the multipurpose room in the Frist Student Center where you may continue uh, the questions, where there will be refreshments. But before doing so, I really must thank uh, Lester Little for having brought this series of lectures to a triumphant conclusion. Many, many thanks. <laughs>